Thanks for tuning in to Upward Way Podcast. If you're looking to be spiritually blessed, moved, and inspired, there is no doubt you are in the right place. On our show, guests recount their encounter with Christ and how their lives have been transformed through the grace and love of God. And now, please welcome our host. Hello and welcome to Upward Way. I am your host, Marlon Walters. My guest today is an author and international evangelist. He's also the president of Jesus is the Way Prayer Ministry and a ministerial theological student at Oakwood University. Pastor Billy Miranda, welcome to Upward Way. Greetings, my dear brother. Sir Marlon, how are you doing? I'm doing fabulously well. It's really a joy and pleasure to have you here with us on Upward Way. And just, you know, to tell the listener, Billy Miranda is someone I met maybe about eight, nine years ago. So we have a bit of a history. Well, thank you very much. I just want to say greetings to the people in Japan, um, across Asia, and those who are listening across the world, Adventist World Radio, on the program Upward Way. I want to say special greetings to you. Thank you very much for having me today. Yes, it's a joy again, as I say, to have you. And I must say thanks for taking the time out of your, I know, busy schedule to share with us. And as I look at how you are dressed, I can see that you're a man on a mission. You don't only um, say the talk, but you also walk the talk. In terms of background, you know, where did Billy's life begin? Well, first, let me say I was born in Spanish Town. was born in Spanish Town, St. Catherine, in Jamaica, a beautiful country named Jamaica. I recall growing up between St. Catherine and Kingston, life was very interesting. Um, in terms of one, I grew up with my mom and my dad together in the first five years of my life. So I can recall, as young as I was then, at three years old, I used to attend the Old Daba Seventh-day Adventist Kindergarten School. Now, my mother and my father were not Adventists or Christians at the time, but a lot of parents in, in Odava at the time, would send your kids to the Seventh-day Adventist school. And so I went there, but in a couple of years after, my mom and my dad broke up. So I was left to grow with my grandmother. So my grandmother has six children, five girls, and one boy. And some of them have migrated to the States at the time. And one was living in London, in England at the time. And so on a personal note, the only support I had at the time, my mother was working in a bar a pub, you know, in Kingston, and she would come home 2 a.m. before day in the morning. And then she has to sleep, and by 11 o'clock, she has to go on again in the morning. So in those days, um, life was interesting. So my grandma was the one my mother would leave all of us with. My mom has 11 children, seven girls and four boys. I am the third child out of 11 and the first boy. And so I have two sisters ahead of me. And so at the time, I recall, my mom has at least four children when I'm recalling my, my kindergarten years. So that was in a community called Sharper Lane in St. Catherine. In Jamaica, they were uniform in schools. So my grandma used to make uniforms as a dressmaker. A lot of those students from all over will come to make the uniform there. She was well-respected in St. Catherine. And I must say that my grandma became my best friend in terms of teaching me domestic chores, how to wash, cook, clean, 
teach us how to be respectful all the lessons of life. And she was my best friend. And she used to give us a lot of spanking as well. We received beating when we give trouble. So though she was a, a beautiful grandma in terms of loving and everything, she was also stern. And as we say in the Caribbean, tough love, meaning that she loves you, but she's very disciplined and principled in her love. And so my life was, as a young man growing up, was okay. The only factor was I never had no male figure in my life much because my step-grandfather at the time, because my real grandfather, who my grandma married to first, he had died before I even knew him. And so my step-grandfather would come home very late in the night. So most of who were mentors were like females. My aunts and, and my cousins were females. It was a woman family. Very few male was in the family. And so we grew up in a nice family home, extended family home in St. Catherine. And from there on to kindergartens to, we say in North America, elementary school, which in the Caribbean we say primary school. And that, that period is six years from first grade to sixth grade. So a six-year period in elementary school in Jamaica, and we call it primary school. And so my life, my grandma, as I said, she has six kids, five girls, one boy. And so the last child for her, her name was Maria Celestine Ford. Uh, in Jamaica, the last child is always used of a phrase called wash belly. What does that mean for our audience? That means that child is the last child for the parent that gets all the attention, all the accolades, all the praise. And so my aunt, she was specially loved by my grandmother. But then all our lives were okay until things are about to go to another path. So I grew up in St. Catherine, and between there and Kingston, my life began, my mother working in a bar, my father was missing out my life, and my mom was the one to work hard to pull us through school. And at the same time, um, my grandma was the one, she was a daycare center, almost all her grandchildren. And that's how I grew up in St. Catherine, Jamaica, at that stage in my life. I went to Old Daba Primary School, which is Old Daba, uh, for those in North America, elementary school. And that's how I grew up, my first, I would say, three to 10 years of life. Sounds wonderful. So you had a matriarch, you know, your grandmother was the family matriarch, not only the one extending love, but she was also a disciplinarian. And just for context, as you mentioned, in North America, they'll say elementary school. Here in Japan, we say shogako. So your shogako was at that particular school. You mentioned a point that despite your grandmother's love, etc., that the male figure was missing. I just want to give you a few minutes just to, you know, hit on that note. Why is it so important to have male figures, male role models within a family structure? Well, first thing I want to say to all mothers and all fathers who are listening, a mother cannot be a father and a father cannot be a mother. I know in our society today, a lot of times mothers tend to try to play both roles because the men are missing, whether they are behind bars, which means they're in prison, or, you know, whether they're in the cemetery because they've been killed, so men are missing in the homes. And what I've seen from my perspective is that pure females, grocery shop together, school, home, every day, pure females. And we are told by my grandma that the males in the family, we are responsible to protect all the females. But we were so few in numbers compared to all the females in the family. And it was a great responsibility because we couldn't be everywhere where they're going to be at. However, we had to give them our full support. 
And so when the influences on the outside in the society can impact you as a young man, especially in the community I was, we grew up decently, but as the story unfolds, you will then understand why it is so important to have male figures. Why I say this? Because you will then understand how the influence of men who are not under the control of God, but rather society men involved in evil doing. And so their impact, their legacy is going to be very strong on young men. And so as a young man, I really needed that support, that male figure support, who could talk to me, someone I could sit down, talk to about life, God, love. But growing up, none of that was there. There was no male figure to steer me other than, we are told, to protect the females, which outnumbered us. And we have to walk with them to grocery shop, airport trips, wherever they are going. As young as we were, we're told to protect them. And I recognize the importance of the protection, also the guidance of male role. And let me say this, every young man needs to have their father in their lives. Every parent should be in his life. But as a young man myself, not having my father wrong, at the time I really needed that bond of a father. When I see other friends having their both parents together, that is something I always admire, even though I was not much exposed as a young man. You'd have listened to Billy, Pastor Billy Miranda, talking about the male were, I would say, educated to be the protector of the family and also having a father. Even if it's not your biological father, then there are certain roles that that person um, would play. And getting to a particular point in the interview that he will come to, because there was a turning point. You know, he mentioned earlier how much love his grandmother offered and how much she passed on certain values. But there was a turning point somewhere along his journey, which I'll allow him at this time to see, you know, what is it that made the change from, you know, you being this loving child, then going along a particular path. But I'll allow you just to tell that part in your own words. Right there, as my journey continues, in the extended family home, everything was going on great. So as I mentioned earlier on, the last child for my grandmother, her name is Maria Sudatine Ford. She met a guy when they were in high school together. And then from there on, they got intimate, but he was very abusive, physically abusive. And when he beats her, she thought at the time crazily that this was love. Uh, that's why he beats her. Because of her understanding then was very, very shallow. And so it was very, very hurtful to see my aunt then continue in a relationship so abusive physically. And then guess what happened? The beating continues. She got pregnant for him, the first child. And then the second child. And then going to the third child. And right between the process, her mother, which is my grandma, said to her, Mar, she called her Mar, a short abbreviation for the word Maria. You need to leave. This guy is going to kill you. And she says, Mama, no, he loves me. That's the reason why he beats me. And she continued in the relationship. And no matter how much her mother's warned her, she continues. No, my grandma was the one that has brought the family together, meaning she's the one who kept all the family reunions. She was that person who couldn't keep malice in the family. She was that special person. And she took sick and she found out she had kidney issues. She had diabetes, then cancer, and she struggled six to nine months battling to the hospital, home nursing, to the hospital, home nursing, 
And on her final visit before she went back to Kingston Public Hospital in downtown Kingston, Jamaica, she then called all of us in her master bedroom. And she looked at her daughter and said, Mara, for the last time, you need to leave this guy who's going to kill you. And she replied and said, Mama, I'm certain you won't do it. She said to us, stay united as a family. Look out for each other. And remember, I love you. She went back to the hospital. I went and I visited her. She had a special name. She called me. And as I said before, my grandma was my best friend. We could talk about anything in life, no matter what the topic or the subject is, because I love my grandma. Then, sadly, my mother went to see her the Tuesday. She was cheering up as in 2004 in July. And then my mother was there talking to her. She was praying and saying, I love all my children. My mother went to the bathroom. And when she came back, my grandma had gapped, had blown her last breath. When the news came that my grandma died, there has been a hole in my heart. The hole will not, will not be removed until Jesus comes. My grandma died with unfailing faith. She died trusted and believing in God and in the power of his resurrection. And by the grace of God, I look forward to see my grandma, Miss Ruby Oakley, again. I missed her so much. And if she was around today, she would have been the happiest grandma in the world. When she gone, was the first time I remember crying so vividly of losing someone. And from that moment onward, we had never again had a family reunion or any family get together. The family was split in three, but then my aunt decided to take the message from her mom at a late stage, a year after her mom died, to break up this relationship with this guy. Three kids to have together, two girls, one boy. The son at the time was two years old. And then what he did, she said, you know what? It's all between us now. And then he said, well, if, which is my aunt, Maria, her children's father. He then replied to her, if I can't get you back, no one else can get you. And so he paid someone to have her killed. And my aunt was coming home from work a month after. But in October, he was threatening her, threatening her. He stopped giving financial support. And she took him to court. And then he made a threat. It's the last time they go into a court case. And so she was coming home from work and she was approached by a gunman and they gave her two shots in her head and one in her back. She was killed on the spot. And it was very painful for me because every evening after school, I, I started Old Abba High School in seventh grade in 2005. And every evening after school, I would go by a workplace, I wait for her because as a man, you know, we're always told to protect them. And... I would accompany her where she could get her cab to go home, her taxi to go home. And that evening she asked me to leave her because she was staying later at work. I was insisted to stay with her, but I left her. And when we heard she died, the world became of her dark place. My heart was further ripped into. She died at 29 years old. Died with three kids, two girls and one boy. Her children's father paid someone 40,000 Jamaican dollars, which was equivalent to roughly 300 US dollars to have her killed. And this was devastating. As a young man, 12, 13 years old, I knew nothing about badness, nothing about gang life. But when that did happen, I decided I must go down the path of darkness, which is gang violence. And then the world became a very dark place. First of all, for one year and six months, I cried every single day. Because every day I saw my cousins crying, it ripped my heart in two. And so first I learned karate, when I trained karate, I trained a little boxing. And then 
I, at the time, my friend was a deceased now. He was a member of a very terrible, vicious gang. And at the time now, these men are human beings, but they are the heart of animals. So these men are men who, who have read about, for those of you who have observed our newspaper in Jamaica, the Observer, the Gleaner, you can go on Google and you see it. You research and see, hear about those erroneous things happened back then in Jamaica. Most of the folks I'm talking about are deceased now. So these men were heartless. And when I told them what happened, because where I was living was a nice home, um, between my grandma's home to the scheme where my, my mother moved to housing scheme. And so we live in a decent neighborhood, but where I used to spend holidays at my relative's home in different parts of Jamaica, St. Catherine and Kingston. And by doing so, I met these gangsters. And I told them my objective, that what I want, I want blood and I want revenge for two men's life. The one who pulled the trigger to kill my aunt and the one who pays the money, which is your children's father. Um, I want their life. And I said, once I take their life, I'm done with gang violence. But let me pause to say to our viewers, our listeners, sin or evil have no limit where it will not take you. In other words, sin will take you or evil further than you ever plan to go and keep you longer than you ever plan to stay. What do I mean? When we engage in wicked or cruel acts or ungodly acts, sometimes we believe we can control at what level, how far we will go. But when we're under the control of another force and we're actively engaged in sin, it is sweet, it is enticing, it is encouraging. And the more evil you do, is the more encouraging it encourages you to do more because it gets more exciting. As cruel as it may be to others, it excites you, it entices you, and leads you down to what is sweet but ends in destruction. And so I went in the gang life trying to now learn the game of gang violence just to take revenge. But then my life was trapped in that life because I'm meeting these men and they told me for me to become a member of the gang, there is some series of events, of things I must do first to win their confidence. And this is how now I have to get into gang life. And this is how it begin to happen. And so we're going to get deep into it better. But this is how my path have turned from a decent young man growing up to now being in gang violence. My aunt was killed and I decided I want to take revenge. And revenge war is one of the most deadliest war because then the love has left my heart. And all remained in my heart was blood for those responsible for my aunt's death. And I was crying for days, weeks, and months over my aunt's death. You know, interestingly, you have painted a pretty graphic picture as to the series of events that led to what you would refer to as your initiation into gang violence. And incidentally, you said, you know, the turning point was death itself, first of your grandmother the matriarch of the family, then your aunt, your beloved aunt. And you have also said something which many persons have never thought about, that it's exciting, it's enticing, though destructive it is. I know you may share a bit as to you know, the process, and I will, I will permit you, but I want to remind the listeners that as we listen, though Billy will share a bit of the process, that there was a turning point. So I'll allow you just to share a bit of course, maybe not as graphic. And then you will come to a juncture when there was a turning point because today he's no longer a gangster. Today he's preaching God's word globally. So you may continue. All right, thank you very much. 
So the life in gang violence went deep and deeper, and there was no turning back. Events begin to happen. My friends begin to die, death after death after death, and police after police, with so many inclusion going on, and there was no hope for us. And then I went into demonism, where we went into spiritism. At that time, I never knew that demons were real, being outside. Someone who didn't believe in God or Christianity. By the time I was so struck, a matter of fact, I was compelled when I saw how, how real demons were. So what they do is that they take us inside the bathroom, take all our clothes off. They put up a, a bucket, a basin, uh, filled with water. They put some black uh, a liquid inside of it. The water turns black, thick and slimy. We have to bathe in that water. They put a cold pot on the ground and put some stuff inside to burn and smoke like fire. And sometimes they, they slay an animal as a part of the sacrifice. And that blood is a part of the ritual. And when the ritual is done, you pause and you see the literal form of demons coming and entering inside the body. So now I not only got trapped in the gang world, and then also I got trapped in the demonic world where there was no turning back. In my high school level, at Old Abba High School, I was a junior don for the Dead Dealers gang. The gang I had outside, I formed a junior one at high school. And almost every single week, I was suspended from school. So my life was a, a total wreck in school because now I'm fighting wars outside with those older men in their wars because at the same time, they'll kill my gang leader mother. So, you know, I'm not involved in all those things. So I now get involved in fighting wars as a young man. And those days, I would not come home until 4.30 in the morning. Imagine as a mother, you have a 14-year-old son, 15-year-old son, who you don't see coming home till 5 o'clock in the morning. Everyone in my family had turned their back on me. Every single person, except for my mother. Almost everyone had turned their back on me because they said, number one, to my mother, she should poison me, my food, kill me in my sleep because I'm an embarrassment to the family. But my mother decided to pray. At the time, not being a Christian, she tried everything, all the doctor bills, all those who have damaged. She's the one who has to be in the old legal battle and medical battle, trying to stand there for me when every, almost everyone, I recall, forsake me in the family realm. In Old Abba High School, I was, to be, I was to be dismissed from school because of all the damage I was doing, because I was suspended all the time. But they wanted to expel me permanently from school because of all the damage I have done in the school, shedding blood, hurting students. But then, what will God do in my life when I'm now at a stage where there's no hope? Number one, I needed a firearm to always protect me. So there's no way I can think about Christianity. Number two, I'm a part of a demonic ritual. And bear in mind, listeners, four times a week, I must attend a ritual. And these rituals are very graphic. But when the rituals are done, you're seeing the manifestation of demons. And then at the same time, I'm involved in the whole aspect of gang violence, like many young men today. So my life was trapped. There's no way any earthly power could move my life. The man who killed my aunt, he died. The one who shot her, he died. We're searching for the children's father. The question is, will I find him? And how can God intervene in someone who don't know about God? So remember now, you don't know about God or Christianity, except what you learn um, in Easter and Christmas time, or going to an Adventist school, you heard stuff 
but to really know nothing with this concern. And then at the same time, my life is turmoil. I reached a stage where I had to cut my own hand and taste my own blood. So this was very, so there was no hope, no turning back for me. My life was a wreck. But my mother, she prayed, she prayed, she prayed, she prayed. And the more she prayed, is the worse I became. So what happened to a mother who is praying for her wayward children? You're praying for your son, mothers. You're praying for that grandson. And, and the more you're praying, is the worse the child become. What is the remedy? Well, in my book, I wrote on my testimony, there's a chapter I speak about a mother's prayer. And I said, when a mother is praying for her sons and daughter, and there seems to be no changes, angels of God and the Holy Spirit is working behind the scenes. What am I talking about? You see, in the elements of the power of prayer, before things get better, things has to become worse. In other words, I want us to understand that God works inside out, not outside in. So a lot of times, parents are looking for visible changes, and they're not seeing it. My mother never saw any visible change. Every time a gunshot fire over the turf I was a part of, she would ring my phone. And I know she's praying for me. And sometimes when I reach home, my mother pillow would wet with tears. I remember she would wait until I reach home. She would pray in my presence. And let me say to all mothers, as rough as I was, as a gangster, as cold as I was, when my mother prayed in my presence, it kills me on the inside. In other words, it breaks me, tore me apart to hear my mother who burnt me, who I love and loved me, praying to God, asking God to change me. I was upset with her asking God to change me because I didn't want to change. I love what I was doing. But she would pray in my presence saying, God, save my son. Praying and crying. And my gang life continues for almost four years. And every single moment of destruction, of evil, my mother would pray, 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 and she never stopped praying. So how will God intervene? In 2009, in July, Mrs. Patricia Green called my mother and said, Miss Oakley, we're very sorry, but going towards a new semester in 10th grade, your son can't come back to school because he has done too much damage. Remember now, I was suspended, suspended. So they're saying now, it's time for expel. Sorry to interject. I just want the listeners, in case they were not in tune, the picture he has just painted is it's not of an adult who is in gang warfare. This is a child going on to 15, somewhere they are bought. A full-fledged gangster, not one year, not two years, going three years, living a life of gang warfare. He's a gangster on the street at night. At school, he's running his own gangs. And he's saying right at this point, after being suspended on several occasions, the school is now meeting for him to be expelled, which is to be kicked out of school. As I said, sorry to interject, but I had to do that. Continue. Thank you very much. So basically, it was the end of my life in high school, supposedly. But then here comes the new principal, Mr. Linton Ware. Mr. Linton Ware, he was the vice principal on, on the senior shift, but then he was becoming principal rather. He found me and said, Billy, I get to understand that you are the Don, you are the gang leader run the school, run the shift. But I want you to understand when you come on the senior shift, on my shift, I'm the principal. I'm the one who run the school. Only one gang leader you can have. Only one dog. And that's me. And you know what? Two don can't stay. Two gang leaders can't stay in school. So it's either we're going to have to work together. And the principal, 
It was so fascinating. He would, every day, he would target me. During the, the time when he allowed me in 10th grade, he would ensure that every day he'd watch me, follow up with me. And it was very uncomfortable because I wanted to stay in school. He decided, believed in me to give me a chance to stay in school and to continue in school in spite of what I was doing. So what happened is that I would allow my younger friends to do certain activities because I didn't want to be the one showing up because I respect the principal. So all my school friends, um, male and females who were young in my age group, they would be the one actively doing the things that I normally do back there. And I would stay behind the scene because the principal, I have the greatest of respect for him. And now I wouldn't want to disappoint him. And so my journey, the first semester of 10th grade and then the last semester of 10th grade, remember now, someone who had been suspended so many times, that means so many students. Then in 2010 was the year of a miracle. Let me tell you what happened now. In 2009, the latter part, I was involving a lot of evil outside of school. Because remember, the war is going on in school, outside of school. But inside of school was mostly school kids, high school age group. But outside, I want us to understand it was devastating because my friends were dying daily by the police, daily by other gunmen. And so imagine 15, 16-year-old parents. This is what happened, can happen to any young man. And in some cases, when life gets like this with no support, my mother had to be the one trying to play both roles. It was impossible. It was impossible. And at that time, all the gang bangers, they are the ones claimed that male role model in my life. And so they were the ones I'm following. Whatever they said to me was gold because they seem powerful and ambitious and making all the money and living all this life. That's what I saw. Even though it's causing pain and havoc in the community, all I'm seeing is the exciting part of it. And then one of the witchcraft leader, they tried every single thing. I reached a stage where I thought I was done, but I want to say something what happened in 2010. In 2010, I'm going to give you a nine-month summary of what God allowed to happen quickly. So first of all, in 2010, between January to March, one of my greatest idols, a man who is a secular person, sat me down one day in Kingston and said to me, Billy, look at all the shootouts you've been through, all the gun battles. All the spirit is in all the rituals. Everyone, think about this. Everyone thought I was hopeless. There was no hope to transform my life. Look at all the things you have been through. Do you know that there is a God in heaven? This is a, a secular person. He said, Billy, you have never been shot before. All the different shootouts and you have been speared. He said, you can be a gangster believer. I said, what do you mean by that? He said, you can believe in God and still have your gun. But you need God's protection. You, need, you don't need the power of witchcraft to protect you. And this man's statement to me, he said, you need to start reading the Bible and pray. And at that time, I was a bit taken about because I'm wondering, what is this guy talking about? God and the Bible? He said, Billy, the God of the Bible is real. This is now someone who is my mentor. And that's why it goes back to say a role, a role model and a male figure. This is a man who is a secular person. And what God did now is use a man who I idolized to tell me that in spite of how evil I am, there's a God in heaven. And this is when now I begin, before I attend school each day, to build up my marijuana. He said, God, Jamaica, marijuana. And I'll put it inside the paper. 
and I will open my, my Bible, have my, my tea, you know, more cup of tea, and then I light my marijuana and begin to smoke. And I start to read Psalms 1 first. Blessed is a man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. Every verse I read, I take a puff. And I kept reading, 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 reading. As I continue to read, this journey was a very special journey because I want to say to all our listeners, every moment I begin to read the Bible, especially the book of Psalms, as a gangster, what came across to me is that the God of the Bible seems to be interested in protecting his people against their enemies. And even though I was an enemy of God, Psalms like says, Psalms 35 declares, plead my cause, O God, with them that fight with me. Fight against those that fight against me. I said, wow. So this God is fighting against my enemy. And to me, my enemies are the other gang bangers in different gangs. So if the God I'm, I'm reading about is interested in protecting me, that's a good God, even though I don't want to become a Christian. And secondly, the Lord is my light and my salvation. As a fearless person, those Psalms gave me hope to my conviction. And then it goes to Proverbs. With Proverbs now, things begin to change. Because the more wisdom I learn, I will go to school, call a meeting, and share those wisdom. And my friends were marveled, saying, what is really happening? How are you involved in good and evil at the same time? Because as I learn, I share. And then one day I needed God to do a miracle for me. There are several miracles. One day I needed some money. And I tell you something, there was no other way I had. Because all we had was blood money, which could not be used for that purpose. I needed, I think it was for Matt's class. Specifically, I needed. And I remember the money was to be paid. I couldn't find it. And I remember after praying, when God worked the miracle, I've never seen in my life and provided that money for me. That blew my mind away. That $8,800 I found in the wet mall on the ground. When God provided that money, it was an eye-opening to me, but that never moved me. So what happened next? A toothache pain. And someone might say, what is the great about a toothache pain? Well, my toothache pain, my mother took me to doctor. They gave me injection in my gum to kill the pain. It would still hurt me still. All the tablets I took, everything, the pain was overbearing. After going to private doctor, guess what happened now? She decided to take me to Spanish Stone Hospital. And they recommend the vulture injection, a strong painkiller. And when that was injected in me, the pain would not stop. So I could not take it anymore. And I remember I cried aloud. Remember now, at this point, I'm reading the Bible, chapter after chapter, book after book. But I'm not a Christian. But the wisdom from the Bible is beginning to inspire me to share to my gangster friends. And when I prayed for the miracle and God provided for me, that was giving me hope. But my concern was, I cannot be a Christian because my enemies in the other gangs, they will come and kill me. This is important. And secondly, I remember I have to go to the rituals four times a week because the rituals I was a part of, it happens every week. Demonic ritual and demon manifestation. So how do I leave those? So the two-take pain was hurting me, overwhelming me. I remember I cried out to God in the hospital and the pain passed. And I said, God, are you the one really causing the pain on me? I said, God, if you're the one, guess what happened? I'm going to try my best to keep you off from allowing the pain to come back. So I'm going to read the Bible tonight, all night, if that's what you want me to do. 
just to allow the pain not to come back. Because if that toothache pain was so severe, it's like headache and two at the same time. I used to love my dumpling Jamaican food. And during that night, that, that day, the period, I could not eat anything except cup noodle, except soft stuff. So I was angry for my food and angry otherwise. But then something is about to happen now, which break the ice. In the latter part of 2010, towards the middle rather, as we ended school, so the latter part of school semester in 10th grade, then a young lady was at Old Arbor High School who I wanted, and she was interested in me. And so I told her the policy of the school, the policy I said, that once she's new, I have to be her first boyfriend. And she rejected the whole idea. And she told her brother on me, who was a gangster. I never knew he was a gangster, a different term. And so one day my girlfriend said to me, could you accompany me to my taxi stand, to where I get taxi to go home? Normally, if I'm going there, I'll bring my friends and make sure I have firearms and I'm well prepared. But this time I left my firearms. I have nothing to bring with me. And I told my friends to leave me. And when I was with her on the stand, at the bus stop, at her bus stop. We stayed for a period of time, and then the demons begin to move in my body, which means danger is coming as a part of the, the ritual I was a part of. I was so shocked. When that transpired, I said to her, I have to leave now. And then she said, Billy, don't leave. Stay longer. I stayed longer. Then she said, goodbye, kiss me. After she left me, waved to me at the bus stop. When I turned around, I saw almost 30 men. And those men, one of the guys was the young lady brother who I taught. Remember now, my gang policy is you can't see an enemy and run. That day in my uniform, held on to me and began to stop me. Listen, after they held me, searched me and brought me in the process because first they wanted to do it at the front of their lane of where the roadway was. But someone who owned the drug center with the grilled chicken and, and pork said, don't kill him right here, kill him further down. And I thought the person would have begged for me my uniform as a young man in high school. And that night was a defining night in history. In my book, I wrote a chapter on the three great miracles that got my attention. I want to say to our listeners, heaven bear witness that night, the amount of stab I received. I was stabbed from every single angle. And every time I sight one stab, another knife coming, knife and something called iceberg. Iceberg is a sharp pointed aluminum uh, that is so sharp it can use to chip ice frozen ice and that ice prick will begin to stop me and i said to myself i'm dead now and after five minutes i let my hands down i couldn't hold the block anymore stops i was too tired i thought it's the end of my life and that is where something miraculous happened what am i talking about i'm talking about the power of a miracle when the senior gang leader son came on the scene and he said, no one touch him. None of you touch him. And so everyone paused and he said, Billy, okay? I said, no, Bobby, they just kill me. They kill me, Bobby. He said, Billy, what happened? I said, Bobby, they kill me. Because I felt the stabs all over my body. And I'm so weak. And I know because one of the time when they were stabbing me, the girl brother said to them, he's not bleeding. Push the knife further. And they spin the knife in my rib cage. That's when I felt that my, my rib has been broken. So I thought it was the end of me. He said, police is coming, police is coming. And so they leave a scene where whatever happened to me. And so I ran from there, heading towards the police station. 
When I reached the police station, I saw several female police on the step. And I ran over to them and said, officer, a group of guys just stopped me. And they were so frightened, they ran and said, where? They said, all over my body. And so they begin to take off my, my uniform shirt, um, khaki shirt. And when they took it off, they said, where did I stop you? And they begin to walk around, take off my marina, pull my pants, wondering where in your back they stop you. But I want to say there was not one blood dripping or draining down my body. And that one bruise. And that night, as angry as I was with God, saying, why did I left my firearm? But then that night, after much prayer, the voice of God spoke to me directly, saying, I want you to understand that I'm the greatest protector. These men attack your weapon, and that one of them could harm you. And yet still you're saying, you can't serve me without a weapon to protect your life. I want you to know I'm the greatest protector. If any man want to come after me, let him first deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. When that voice confirms to me, this is when I decided I no longer need any firearms. I'm making myself vulnerable now without guns. But that means my story ends in September, so my enemies are coming to kill me. What will God do? So let me tell you what God did now. Right there that summer, when I gave up the, the whole firearm issues, and my friends were dying, like I said, daily in the war, over 400 members, they were dying different parts of the world, but particularly in Jamaica and St. Catherine and Kingston, they were dying in Clarendon. There was no hope for my life, but my mother was still praying. In that same summer, the school principal, Mr. Linton Ware, he gave me a volunteer project work to do, along with several other students, and I must confess to the audience, I never knew that that work was what God was using to save me. Why? When I begin to work there, the head boy, Dwayne Lewis, is a member of Old Arbor Seventh-day Adventist Church. And he was head boy. So he led the program, the work program, from Sunday to Friday. And so my meeting ritual, I was so tired. So I missed the first weeks of rituals. Sunday night, Wednesday night, Friday night. And then, guess what happened? In the second week, I missed again. And when they saw, I thought, it was all good now. They would give me time and give me break. They came with a startling warning to my mother about what will happen to me if I don't come back. And when I decided to make a difference, this is so profound. They wanted to kill me and kill the entire family. Because once you're part of a demonic ritual, you can't leave so easily. So how will God rescue me? My family was in terror. My stepfather, he had two houses. And so all of them were over by the other home. I was at the other house by myself, spending most of the time because they rejected me, except my mom would still come and take care of me. And I want to say to the entire audience how powerful God is. When that experience happened to me, I thought it was the end of my journey. But then for four weeks straight, I did the work. As a result of that, I missed four weeks of ritual. So I'm worried about the gang life. Enemies saying they're coming to kill me soon because they heard I no longer have a gun to protect me. And then the demons now, demon ritual, witchcraft leaders now, are saying, if I don't come back, but the work kept me occupied. So when the work was done, I decided I'm going to return to their rituals. When I reached home to the house, I saw blood, animal blood on my clothes. So many things were happening. And I said, wow. And they wrote sign there that my time had expired. So I thought my death time was about to come now. I had no money, all the money I had, all the blood money, everything was gone. I remember Mr. Weir called me, the principal, 
and said, Billy, I see if the volunteer work you have done, but I see where I can give you $10,000 towards your back to school. Do you want it? I said, yes, sir. He paid me. And when that money came through, I became a prefect. A prefect in Jamaica is a student leader, but no one knew yet until September morning. So he gave me, and then I bought my stuff, and I'm now ready for September morning. But something happened now. In that same time, a couple nights afterwards, I was at home when I felt I could not breathe. I felt a block was resting on my head. And I remember I cried out to God. I said, Lord, I'm asking you for the final chance. If you give me the final chance, I'm going to stop smoke. I'm going to serve you. And Lord, please show me which church you want me to be a part of. And listen to this part now. When that night, I felt something came straight from my tummy and came straight through my mouth. And I vomited immediately. The demon's leaving me now. And then I felt something lift off my head. And I just felt normal again. And then I said, too late, Satan. Even though you're going to kill me soon because witchcraft leaders are not yet done with me because my enemies is coming back to kill me. So how will God be able to save my life? Well, right there in that August spirit, when I went to my stepfather's house, I was right there. I fell asleep in the couch studying the Bible when I heard a car crash on the outside. And after I heard a car crash on the outside, I got up, I saw no one. But then I heard the voice said, take up your Bible and go to the extreme side of the house or the bathroom manhole. I sat there and I opened the Bible and I saw a text on the seven-day Sabbath. I want you to know that after reading about the seven-day Sabbath and how God is showing me that this is where he wants me to go. It was not long afterwards when I said, but Lord, who do I know go to a Sabbath-keeping church? And that's when I saw a bright light. The light was so bright and it shined so bright in my face. And I saw a man stand up. His name is Derek Thompson. He cuts grass. He's, he's a gardener in St. Catherine. And when I saw him stand before me, the voice said, yes, ask him. It was shortly after my mother was outside, hanging out clothes on the line, and she was talking to the same man. And so I said, Derek, which church you go to? He said, I go to Berea Seventh-day Adventist Church. We worship inside the auditorium. And then when my mother heard, I said, well, you know what? I want to come to your church, even though the important part, my enemies is coming back to kill me. But right there, I said, Derek, is it possible I want to come to your church this Sabbath with you? He said, what? He said, I said, yes. He said, well, we have divine service. And he explained all the service. When my mother heard on Tuesday, she ran to leave all the clothes on the line. She went and pressed my clothes the same Tuesday for church for Saturday in advance. Cleaned my shoes. She was overwhelmed and told the entire community that they should pray because this Sabbath I'm going to church. And then a miracle happened. The first Sabbath, Elder Glenn Heaven. I'm going to talk about his part. And then I'm going to pause. But Elder Glenn Heaven, when he was showing the clause of probation and how before Jesus come, he was doing a revelation seminar to show before Jesus come how everyone needs to make a decision because probation will close. When I saw that, I almost fainted. I said, Elder, before the entire church, prayed for me. And God would not leave me alone for one week straight, Sir Marlon. All the evil I have done flashed before my eyes and every single night at eight o'clock for one week straight. And then I said to the elder, Elder, 
I want to learn all much as I can learn because I know my enemies is coming to kill me. But guess what happened? When I learned all the different doctrines, as said, Paul, I want to be a member of this church. He said, deceased now. He said, well, we have to go to the pastor and stuff first. But then Elder Edgar from Old Arbor Church, that Bible worker, and the pastor at the time, Doran Kelly, they searched for me and do the board and opposition because everyone was afraid of the life I used to live. But Edgar, Edgar and those men, they work along with me. And then September morning, I want to tell you about the powerful miracle now. All my enemies is coming back to kill me. My baptismal night was set for September 12, 2010. What will God do for the demons coming back for me? I must tell you something. That same week at Old Abba High School, when everyone saw me in white shirt, I became prefect at the school with all the damage I've done. They were in so shocked, saying to the principal, are you crazy? Well, the principal said at my wedding, he was the best man at my wedding, Mr. Linton Ware. He said, I saw something great inside this young man. And when that week came, the demons came back to attack me, almost killed me on the play field. And I remember I cried out, at first, I couldn't hear my voice. All my friends were close beside me at the bathroom. They could not see anything. But I remember when I called on the Lord's name three times. On the third time, Sir Marlon is like an hurricane breakout. I felt a force was moved from my presence. I want to say to our audience, our viewers, no matter what circumstances you're in, there is power in the name of Jesus. And there is deliverance in Christ's name. When those demons left me, then my night of baptism came. That night, with opposition, people, teachers, all overcoming to support me. And that night was a special night in history. Because when I taught, my enemies came to my baptism as well. Because they wanted to take me out. I went around the bathroom, and here's a final prayer. I prayed to God. I said, God, even if my enemies kill me tonight, please forgive me for all the sins I have done. However, Lord, if you have any great plans for my life, if you still have a purpose for me, please spare me. I said, however, God, my desire is to be saved in your kingdom. However, I'm begging you for one chance so I can tell someone about your power. Pastor Miller called me in the water, and that night when I went down inside the water and I accepted Jesus Christ and baptized and became a member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, almost my entire family, including my mother at the time, I've accepted Christ and joined the church. I'm talking about the power of the grace of God. My enemies who wanted to kill me, those individuals have came to me, heard so profound, saw what God has done. I said, Billy, we want to experience the same God of grace you've experienced. And some of those men have accepted Christ as their personal Savior and King. The power of God's grace in my life, Sir Marlon, for almost four years, my mother Never stop praying for me. Never stop praying for your wayward children. Parents, my mother never stopped praying for me. And the power of God's grace has transformed my life. And thank God for praying, mother, and for principal of the high school who believed in me, see me through my journey of failure and success. And when everyone thought I was doomed, he tried with me three times when I was failing exams until I passed the start university. I'm talking about the power of God. The power of God, the power of a role model principal, and the power of Pastor Glenn Caballero 
that God uses influence, the power of the Holy Spirit uses influence. And that man, after putting me under his wings, teach me and Sister Sinclair what it is to do Bible work, to go in the field as missionary. And he gave me the first opportunity to share on a divine service, along with Elder McClure, those persons who helped to train me in the message I will never forget. That day until now, to God be the glory, it has been history. And now the Lord has blessed me to share the gospel of Jesus Christ in almost 12 countries. And I've seen almost 400 souls have accepted Jesus Christ. This is the power of God, power of God, Sir Marla, the power of God. Your testimony today is a reminder to us that God is all-powerful. It puts in perspective the fact that nothing, absolutely nothing, is impossible with God. Well, listeners, we have to pause it here. My guest today has been Pastor Billy Miranda, an author and international evangelist. He's also the president of Jesus is the Way Prayer Ministry and a ministerial theological student at Oakwood University. If you have been blessed and inspired and would like to hear more, then join us again next week for the continuation. And peradventure, you would like to get in touch with Pastor Miranda for a speaking appointment or other ministry needs, you can make contact by way of email at billymiranda at gmail. That is B-I-L-L-Y-M-I-R-A-N-D-E-R at gmail.com, all lowercase, or his mobile device at 1-256-843-0779. That's 1-256-843-0779. Please subscribe to weekly episodes on the Apple AWR, Loud Voice, Spotify, Stitcher, or Podcast Guru apps. You are also welcome to visit our Facebook page. Click like and leave a comment. Until then, I am Marlon Walter saying goodbye. May God bless you. You've been listening to the Upward Way Podcast, the number one audio production show for people who want encouragement and reassurance in a muddled world. 